This episode is brought to you by Estellas Oncology. Estellas Oncology is changing the course of cancer treatment. With a world-class team of medical, clinical, and scientific experts, Estellas Oncology is driving innovation and collaboration to redefine what's possible for those impacted by hard-to-treat cancers. Learn more at estellasoncology.com. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Prostate cancer is one of the most common malignancies in men, second only to skin cancer. It's estimated that one in eight men will develop prostate cancer during their lifetime. Screening is often performed for a variety of cancers, including prostate cancer, and the predominant screening test has been the prostate-specific antigen, or PSA. However, there has been some controversy surrounding the use of the PSA. It's an easily administered test. It's relatively inexpensive and is certainly capable of identifying men with possible prostate cancer. So what's the controversy? Is the PSA an effective screening test? Who should be tested? And how have urologists modified their practice to manage patients with an elevated PSA? We'll discuss these questions in today's podcast on screening for prostate cancer with our guest, Dr. Daniel Friendel, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Dan, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. I have been around long enough to have practiced before the PSA became available. And in those early years, uh, a digital rectal exam was really the only evaluation available for prostate cancer screening. So how good is the digital rectal exam for prostate cancer screening? The digital rectal exam plays an important role in our evaluation of patients. However, as a standalone test, if you were to only use a digital rectal exam in the office in a primary care setting, there's really very limited to no evidence that it is a good screening tool alone at a population level in a primary care setting for evaluating patients for the risk of prostate cancer. Now, that changes somewhat in the context that we see patients in in urology, okay? So once patients have an elevated PSA, the utility of that digital rectal exam is much greater. So when we feel a nodule, significant firmness on one side of the prostate, that begins to increase the probability that there is true prostate cancer there in a patient with an elevated PSA. And for those who are diagnosed on a biopsy with prostate cancer, the digital rectal exam remains a very important staging tool where the lowest stage of prostate cancer is just detected on PSA test alone, confirmed with biopsy. Once we start to feel that disease, it increases the staging and it really helps us guide our management of the patient. So it's still an important test, but as a standalone screening tool, I would not replace a PSA test with just a digital rectal exam as part of your prostate cancer screening algorithm. Mm-hmm. Well, my practice has been primarily middle-aged and older men, and I have found a lot of prostate cancer, almost all by an elevated PSA, but 
there have been a handful where the PSA was normal and I felt a suspicious nodule, which turned out to be prostate cancer. So it is effective, but I, I agree the PSA has been a much more uh, valuable test. So when did the PSA become available to us? So the PSA became broadly available in the early 90s. During that time frame, as it became more widely utilized, we had a very large spike in diagnosis of prostate cancer because the PSA test is uh, very sensitive for potential disease there, although not very specific. We had the opportunity to diagnose a very large cohort of men who probably had been living with disease for years and years. And so that initial incidence looked really high because we were catching prevalent cases of men who had been living with prostate cancer in addition to new cases that were developing. So we saw a large spike in the diagnosis of prostate cancer as the PSA test became widely available. And then that rate of diagnosis leveled off after testing fell into a more routine pattern. Well, the PSA became a very popular test in the 1990s and early 2000s. Then in 2012, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force made kind of a surprising announcement when they advised against PSA testing for all men. Why did they make this recommendation? So it's very interesting. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force was a body largely created in the Affordable Care Act creation to help enable access to preventative screening tools. The reason why people focus so much on their recommendations, not only is it focused on primary care, but a lot of potential reimbursement for screening tests is tied to their recommendations. Very useful to have recommendations like that, but prostate cancer screening, as people began to look at the PSA test, and look at what we were diagnosing for prostate cancer. There's a lot of heterogeneity to prostate cancer. There's very low risk, slow growing disease that may not have in low volume a risk of progressing outside of the prostate gland, particularly in men with more limited life expectancy. So the question was, are we using this test in a way where we're now diagnosing a large amount of prostate cancer that we may not need to be treating and on the flip side, with very aggressive, fast-growing, high-risk prostate cancer, this test may not be sensitive enough at an annual or biannual screening rate to pick up on quick changes in men with fast, rapidly developing disease. And we may not be able to then have the opportunity to cure those patients with the rate that we were doing the screening. So is the screening basically just leading to a lot of overdiagnosis? of men and putting men through biopsies, some of which were causing infection for patients. And so there was a broad question about the utility of the test. There were some randomized trials that had some conflicting responses about that question of, is there a benefit to saving or avoiding prostate cancer deaths with screening? There's a very large trial performed in the United States where the control arm of patients actually had a lot of patients who, despite being randomized to not having routine screening, still went out because of the availability of PSA testing and got PSA screening tests anyway. So the data from that trial are 
many urologists question whether that was truly a, a valid randomized control trial. There is data to suggest from Europe that at a large population level, we do reduce the rate of metastatic disease with PSA screening by detecting disease earlier and lead to some smaller reductions in prostate cancer mortality. Mm -hmm. But essentially, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force had tried in 2008 to narrow the population of men for whom we use the PSA test. And there really was very little movement in the needle in terms of who we were screening. We were still screening a lot of older men. We were using it very early on in men. And in 2012, the move was basically made. It was largely driven to simplify the recommendation and they made one blanket recommendation. Don't use it as an annual screening test. And the problem there is that we ignore high-risk groups in that recommendation and smaller subsets of men that would benefit from screening. So 2012 was a very controversial year for the PSA screening test because at that point, this broad recommendation came out against screening because of this concern of overdiagnosis and the risks of the testing it led to. And we've been working hard in urology to respond to that in a productive way where we can improve the way we use the test. Mm -hmm. Dan, after this recommendation came out in 2012, was there a decline in the use of PSA for screening? Yes, there was a decline in the use of PSA testing. The studies vary, but essentially there's a cohort of men who, who stopped getting PSA tests at all. Some of those were tended to be younger men, you know, coming up through screening. Once a man has started PSA testing, we often find it's somewhat challenging to stop them from continuing to get tests mm -hmm. because they've already bought into the idea of screening. And we also found in, in some of my own research that regardless of risk category, so we know that men with a family history of prostate cancer. We know that men who are African-American have higher risk of developing prostate cancer. Even those groups had decreases in their prostate cancer screening, again, because the recommendation was a blanket recommendation against the use of the test. Did we see an increased number of more advanced prostate cancer following this? So because prostate cancer is relatively slow growing on average, it takes years for that data to show up at a population level. And that was the concern urologists initially had is that there would now be a stage migration. There is mounting evidence that there is an uptick in the amount of metastatic disease now detected and higher stage disease, disease that's large volume or extending outside of the prostate. And this year, you know, the Wall Street Journal in January woke up to news, the annual cancer statistics are published, headline, we've made great progress in reducing cancer deaths across the United States. And the second sentence there was prostate cancer is an exception because mm -hmm. now we're seeing an uptick of patients with metastatic disease and increased rates of prostate cancer death. And it remains the most common solid organ malignancy in men, although it's not the most lethal. It is the most common. And, and so this issue of doing a better job of identifying those men at risk for serious disease is still a, a serious issue for us. Well, we know the PSA is a good test, but it's not a perfect test. What are some reasons the PSA can be elevated 
other than prostate cancer? Yeah, so benign prostate growth, as the prostate tissue increases in volume, normal prostate tissue produces PSA as well. And often that benign transition zone of the prostate may actually produce a little more PSA than the peripheral zone of the prostate, the outer part closest to the rectum, the part that we feel on a rectal exam, that generally produces a slightly lower amount of PSA. So just having different anatomy to the prostate, different size to the prostate can drive increases in PSA. And that's a reason why we tend to see higher PSA in older men who tend to have larger glands as well. We as urologists often view the PSA number in the context of the age category that the patient's in and sort of adjust that, not just using a hard threshold of, of PSA of four as the cutoff, where a PSA of four might be really high for someone in their 40s or 50s, but really might not be that impressive for someone in their 70s. Benign prostate is a very common reason benign prostate growth inflammatory conditions, so prostatitis, both infectious and non-infectious, can certainly drive changes in the PSA, and they can drive rapid changes in the PSA, where most often cancer won't make a PSA go from 2 or 4 to 12 or 14 in a matter of a couple months. Prostatitis can very much do that, and then we would expect that to come back down, whereas with cancer, the PSA will tend to continue to rise and not come down. Ejaculation and sexual activity will increase the PSA. Activities that are saddle activities and put pressure on the perineum will increase the PSA. So those are some things that I recommend my patients avoid sexual activity and bike riding. And for a period of time, ideally three to five days, there's some variable literature on that before a PSA test to sort of minimize that noise. If we're using the PSA for screening, should we obtain the blood test before a digital rectal exam? Can that elevate the PSA? Yes, that's a great point. Thank you. I would highly recommend doing the PSA before the digital rectal exam. Now, there's some equivocal evidence on how much a digital ex rectal exam increases the PSA, but again, it's an opportunity to avoid a potential rise. And particularly for men with lower PSAs, even if you're increasing the PSA by a point, or half a point, sometimes that can create just enough change that it can create anxiety, which we can help avoid just by the timing of the test. Yeah. I recall a patient that I saw a couple of years ago who had been receiving an annual PSA, and it was always quite low between one and two. And a couple of years ago when I saw him, it was markedly elevated, well over 20. And on further evaluation, turns out two days before his exam, he participated in a very major long-distance bike race. That elevated his PSA. We rechecked it again a month later, and it was back down below two. Yeah, it's a common issue. And we see you know, avid horseback riders and ranchers mm -hmm. here in Arizona who have similar issues. So you know, I certainly factor that into my thought process. Is it the most common reason why men have elevations? No, but it's a way to remove some of that noise. Sure. Is there anything that actually lowers PSA? Certainly medications that men might be on, the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like finasteride. In men who are taking that, um, even at the lower one milligram dose, which is more for hair loss, or the five milligram higher dose for benign prostate growth, we expect the PSA to be cut roughly in half. 
when men are taking that. And so you have to contextualize the PSA in men on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. We tend to double the PSA value to kind of put it back in the normal range that we would expect. So remember to ask about that medication use and contextualize the PSA there. There have been a variety of things that have been done to try to use the PSA to more accurately assess whether there's a concern. And one of them has been the PSA velocity. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so the PSA velocity is looking at that rate of change over time. And technically, it requires at least three assessments to be able to chart change over time. We would recommend that it be obtained over an 18-month span of time with roughly a test every six months. It is designed to help understand sort of a persistent change in the slope of how, you know, where the PSA is going. And if you create a high cut point and say a, a change of two points a year is concerning, you are very likely to find men who have real aggressive prostate cancer developing. But that's a very high cut point where a lot of men you would not be concerned about because they just wouldn't meet that threshold. And you might not want to be waiting 18 months to work that up in somebody with a PSA change that large. So it's been a, a test that when we apply it, I think in men with lower PSAs, because we really, when you have a PSA that's below a threshold where you say ah, automatically would it would dig into this, their change, you know, in men with a PSA of one, two to three, you might be very tempted to want to use the PSA velocity in that setting to help make that PSA more useful a bit. Because we know with a cutoff of four, we might be missing up to a quarter of prostate cancer diagnoses and still calling people as having normal PSAs. But there's some mixed evidence on how useful the, the PSA velocity is. I think we want to use as much information as we have, but we can't peg ourselves to one number. So it's one of the elements of things that I use. Of course, it is at risk for being affected by all the things that can impact PSA, the non-cancerous reasons for PSA rise, but I think it's a useful consideration. Mm -hmm. Is the free PSA or free to total PSA ratio still used as part of a prostate cancer risk assessment? I haven't seen this ordered very often anymore. Yeah, so I, we tend to use that as a test in men who have had some inflammatory prostatitis, and then the PSA number maybe comes down, but is not really back down to where we would hope. And in that case, we would use that ratio and look at the ratio of free PSA to bound PSA. And the lower that ratio, the more likely it is that there is true prostate cancer there. So we do use the test, not in everybody. I don't order a free PSA and I don't see primary care doctors ordering free PSAs with their normal PSA test. But in men who have had bounces in their PSA and inflammatory situations in the past, I do think that on my repeat PSA test, it can have utility. Okay. And then finally, how about the PSA density? Is that useful? I think the PSA density has become a very useful tool but the challenge with the PSA density is, so the PSA density is the PSA number divided by the volume of the prostate. So how do you estimate a volume of the prostate? Well, the best is imaging, ultrasound or MRI. Oh, we're not going out and getting a 
perfect volume assessment on all of the men. So we might not have that number available to us. And our digital rectal exams give us a thumb estimate of the prostate volume. But even as a urologist doing that regularly, you get ballpark estimates, but you don't get exact volume measurements. Once men with an elevated PSA go on to get imaging, like an MRI, it becomes a very useful tool and certainly has panned out as one of the elements that will suggest the risk of disease recurrence, the risk of nodal metastasis. Men who get an MRI now, that's a standard element of the MRI report. The PSA number over the volume, the PSA density is reported out in all the MRIs. And that helps us with figuring out whether men should get a biopsy. So when men get an MRI of the prostate, in the context of an elevated PSA, we're looking for two things. We're looking for lesions of the prostate that we would want to biopsy that look suspicious on the MRI. And two, I look at the density because even though there might not be a lesion, if that density is elevated, I might still recommend the patient go on to a biopsy. Mm -hmm. Dan, you've mentioned imaging a couple of times. Has the prostate MRI pretty much replaced the ultrasound of the prostate? We use them together in terms of working up nodules of the prostate and the initial elevated PSA. Yes, we don't go after an elevated PSA and do an ultrasound of the prostate alone to evaluate the prostate. We now do an MRI instead. There is a small burgeoning field of micro ultrasound, which has very high resolution where studies are evaluating whether it might be as sensitive and good as MRI. But really in today's world, in an ideal world of working up elevated PSA, I really like to have an MRI of the prostate for my patients because that allows us to get that assessment of whether there are visible changes within the prostate. If there are, we can then target those areas for biopsy, increasing the yield of the biopsy and it also allows us to calculate that PSA density. So for that small 15% of men where the MRI doesn't see the clinically significant disease, we then can still proceed with biopsy and help diagnose them if they have cancer. The MRI also allows us in that case with a low PSA density and no visible lesions to potentially avoid a biopsy. And there are increasing data out there from randomized controlled trials. A recent study just published in November in the New England Journal from a large Swedish cohort looking at that question of if you limit the biopsy to men with visible lesions compared to an automatic biopsy for men with elevated PSA, just as a standard template, the primary endpoint there was reducing overdiagnosis of disease we would not treat. And then the secondary endpoint was looking at clinically significant disease, and it was significant for reduction in overdiagnosis and would potentially help avoid biopsies in men who don't need it. Really, what they missed by not doing a standard template biopsy or avoiding a biopsy compared to the men who just were, went automatically to biopsy, they seemed to miss very low volume of potential intermediate risk disease that even still would potentially qualify for active surveillance. So I think that's a study that confirms the utility 
of the MRI. I don't think the MRI is there that it completely replaces the biopsy. We still need a biopsy to diagnose the disease and to understand the grade of cancer because we need to understand how aggressive the disease is pathologically and, and really quantify the volume. But I do think the MRI has become very useful. And now the NCCN guidelines, which I think is one of the most balanced set of guidelines incorporating primary care, urologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists' opinions, really do recommend using the MRI imaging in the workup of men with suspected prostate cancer after an elevated PSA. Okay. Well, given the limitations of the PSA, who and how should we screen men for prostate cancer? Which ones deserve screening and how do we do it? Yeah, so there's certainly a variety of recommendations here, which creates confusion. Uh, even for me as a urologist, sometimes it can be confusing to hone in. So there are broader guidelines from the NCCN, the National Conference of Cancer Network, which I've alluded to. There are the American Urological Association guidelines and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guidelines. Those sort of align between the AUA and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force in terms of targeting men without those risk factors. So the average male coming into your office between the age of 55 and 69 or 70, that's sort of the cohort where the data is strongest in using screening at a one to two year interval for PSA. And again, they recommended in the context of shared decision-making, talking to your patients about the risks associated with biopsy, the risk of diagnosing a cancer that you might not need to be treating, and some of the anxieties associated with that. But in that cohort, those men tend to almost all have 10 to 15-year life expectancies, and they tend to be the men who would benefit from detected disease treatment. So that's without question, I think, the sweet spot for patients. Now, the NCCN guidelines recommend potentially starting at age 45 and increasing screening all the way up to 75 in healthy men and having that discussion still in a shared decision-making context. Now, if your patient is African-American, if the patient has a family history of prostate cancer, then typically we think about starting that discussion in the early 40s, certainly by age 45, and then things like BRCA mutations. So breast cancer is prevalent in women too, and many women are getting genetic testing. So if a man is coming to you and says, well, we have multiple family members with BRCA mutations and breast cancer and ovarian cancer, the, our antenna should be up about possibly this patient might also be at elevated risk of prostate cancer, because we know that BRCA2 in particular is associated with more aggressive prostate cancer developing earlier in men. And then Lynch syndrome patients also are at elevated risk for prostate cancer. You know, they're ele elevated risk for many different cancers. And so those might be patients too that you would want to initiate screening earlier. That uh, can be as early as age 40, sort of more universally agreed upon it starting at 45. So let's say we have found a patient who has an elevated PSA and we refer them to a urologist. How have urologists modified their practice to improve the safety and efficacy of a prostate biopsy in these individuals? 
Yeah, you know, in these patients, we always repeat the PSA to confirm that it's a true elevation. We have worked very hard to increase access to the imaging so that we can make that triage decision about whether you need a biopsy or not in the context of MRI visible lesions and the PSA density. For those patients who need a biopsy, the field has now moved somewhat towards offering transperineal prostate biopsy. So we can avoid sampling the prostate through the rectum and fuse the images with the MRI to increase the yield of the sampling by using MRI guidance and increase the safety of the test in terms of a reduced rate of infections, urinary tract infections and sepsis, prostatitis after the biopsy by not sampling through the wall of the rectum. Now in Europe, the European guidelines prefer a transperineal prostate biopsy over a transrectal prostate biopsy. In the guideline recommendations, we've not gotten to that point in the United States because I think there's some concern about that potentially limiting access to prostate biopsy for men because there's capital cost in switching equipment. But at Mayo in Rochester, we almost exclusively perform transperineal prostate biopsies. In my practice in Arizona, I almost exclusively perform transperineal prostate biopsy. The rate of sepsis is less than one in a thousand patients with a transperineal biopsy by avoiding the rectum and sampling through the skin behind the scrotum in front of the anus. There's much lower risk of bleeding from the rectum because we're not puncturing the blood vessels in the rectum. And so you know, there is some discomfort with poking the skin, but it's a few points on a Likert scale that we manage well with local anesthetic. And I think in terms of avoiding horrible complications like the risk of sepsis, it's a very useful biopsy. The sepsis rates with a transrectal biopsy were up to 2 to 3% nationally. The way we've managed that is using heavy-duty antibiotics for men, and particularly for men who might be on active surveillance. So we detect low-risk disease, but we're going to biopsy them multiple times. As they get multiple antibiotic exposures, it's important for us to transition to methods where we don't have to rely on giving heavy-duty antibiotics repeatedly to them. It's good for antibiotic stewardship. So with a transperineal bi prostate biopsy, there's even debate around whether you need to give any antibiotics over just chloroprep solution onto the perineum. So it has several advantages. It uh, can be done in the office, can be done in the operating room for comfort. It's a matter of access to it for patients. And I think we'll see an increase in utilization. I think it's one of the important responses to that serious concern about the morbidity of working up a PSA. Yeah. Dan, do you see anything new in the horizon that uh, excites you in the field of prostate cancer screening? There's so much in terms of what we're learning about imaging. I think image-guided treatments are increasingly becoming potentially available so that we don't have to necessarily only consider radical prostatectomy and whole gland radiation as the solution to prostate cancer because of, you know we worry about the side effects sexually and urinary function wise there. And certainly without a doubt, the earlier we identify disease, the better we localize where it is, the better we can help patients with decision-making about whether they need it treated and what those treatments can be. The PSMA, prostate-specific membrane antigen marker for 
PET scans is also something that I think we're going to increasingly see a role for in localizing disease and identifying disease. And right now, we're only using it in high-risk patients for metastatic workup routinely. But I've found that those types of scans have been really useful to me sometimes in men who've had multiple biopsies before, younger guys with very high PSAs. We couldn't find the disease. And I did that PSMA test combined with MRI, and I was able to find disease in a really hard-to-reach location, way at the base of the prostate, going up in the seminal vesicles. We've got new things that help us find disease more reliably. I think that that test in the future will be exciting for us. This burgeoning field of improving ultrasound and improving the data that we have. And you know, there are people working on AI algorithms to improve the accuracy of our imaging diagnosis too. So I think there's gonna be a lot of change in this area and we're excited to be a part of the practice and the research around it. We've been discussing screening for prostate cancer with Dr. Daniel Friendel, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Dan, you've given us a lot of information about prostate cancer screening, and I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.